Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery Podcast. It's a place where we explore the world of horror in film, TV, books, and popular culture. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Bruce Markison. I'm your co-host for the program. I'm joined, as always, by our producer and the other co-host, Tracy Asteria. Tracy, welcome to the show. How was your New Year's? It was great, Bruce. Happy New Year to you, by the way. Yeah, um, Happy New Year. It it was quiet, but it was a lovely time for me. So 2024 is kicking off with a bang. So I think it's going to be a fantastic year. How's everything been going with you? Uh, good. We had, a, we had a nice time here. Uh, like a lot of horror and sci-fi fans, I spent a good part of that New Year's Day weekend watching the Twilight Zone Marathon on the Sci-Fi Channel. Don't know if you do that, but that's that's become an annual tradition for me. And they they really went kind of above and beyond this year. They aired 140 out of the 156 original shows that Rod Serling did, uh, uh, the original uh, version of the show from uh, 1959 to 1964. And I got to see quite a few that I'd never seen before, so that was that was kind of cool. Do you do you get into that uh, marathon also? Oh no, I did not. But that sounds fabulous. I'll have to keep my eyes open for it next year. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's always a lot of fun. They just run back to back to back programs for about three and a half days, oh, wow. and they get the vast majority of the shows. Now they do, they do cut from some of the episodes so they can have more commercials and they mm. want to kind of maintain their half hour schedule, but y you get a pretty good gist of, of each show as you watch it. And, and certainly in the twilight zone, certainly uh, a favorite of mine. And speaking of favorites, our guest this week is certainly one of those, uh, someone who joined us initially during the summer of 2023 in what was only our fourth episode, it was really toward the beginning. He is an expert on vampires within popular culture. Uh, his true name is Brian Forrest. He's also known as Toothpickings. Brian has written numerous articles on the subject of vampires. Uh, he has contributed to Tucker Christine's very nice scholarly magazine, Dracula Beyond Stoker, and has also been featured on a number of podcasts, including his own YouTube programs. Brian, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us again. Thank you, Bruce and Tracy. Thanks for having me back. Well, we're glad to talk to you. Brian, the most recent issue of a magazine that I subscribe to called Scary Monsters Magazine. It's an excellent publication, by the way. And the latest issue features an interesting theme it is about vampires from books and movies, but primarily vampires that are not Dracula. They do talk a little bit about some of the more obscure Dracula films from the 70s, well after the years of Lugosi and Christopher Lee's prime. But for the most part, this issue of the magazine looks at the non-Dracula vampires. It makes for a great read. I'm still working my way through the magazine, and we thought that this would be a, kind of a fun topic to explore mm -hmm. with something, someone like you. Sure. It's, it's almost impossible to wrap your arms around the topic of vampires without addressing Dracula, but I think it gets a lot more interesting if you can try to get away from Dracula a little bit and see 
some of the rich tapestry of other vampires that there have been because uh, Dracula, of course, was not the original vampire. There was a whole world of attempts to make vampire canons before Dracula kind of cemented a lot of those ideas about what a vampire is. And even since Dracula, a lot of other authors have attempted to define their vampires in ways that are contrary to Dracula. So before we get right into this, can you tell us how you first became interested in vampires? Uh, well, you'll have to uh, make sure that my story is straight with the last time I was on your show. Uh, <laughs> which time were you telling the truth, Brian? Um, the, <laughs> the, the way I'm, I've told it, and I don't have a short way to say this story, is that uh, I had done a documentary for the History Channel, and the production company asked, do you have any other ideas to pitch? And I remember that there had just been, someone had dug up some graves in Eastern Europe uh, there was a vampire scare. And I thought, my God, this is still going on in the 21st century. And so I wrote up a, a pitch sheet about what happens when people really believe in vampires. And it was received very well, but then went nowhere. Uh, and then I just thought to myself, I, I can make this documentary. And so I did begin to go around the country and interview uh, writers and, and professors and, and scholars who knew a lot about vampires. And then COVID happened, and I never finished the documentary. But along the way, I started uh, just learning a lot of interesting things about vampires that didn't fit the documentary at all, but were just so intriguing. I wanted to start writing about them. And uh, it's great. It's a great hobby for me because I can just concentrate on whatever is interesting to me at that time. And I don't have to answer to anybody else. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Oh, that's amazing. Um, I have a quick question for you. Sure. Do you have a favorite vampire? I do. Um, and it's Blackula. Oh, nice. Uh, Mama Waldi has been my favorite vampire for a few years. I would have said Ellie from Let the Right One In before uh, three or four years ago when I... Uh, so something about... Blackula piqued my interest, and then I couldn't let go of it. And uh, I hope to do something more substantial with research on uh, how that film came to be and the uh, influence it's had. I don't think it really gets its just. Uh, I don't think it gets its uh, just awards for having broken a lot of barriers. Nice. Oh, thank you for sharing that with us. Sure. Yeah, I would agree, Brian. It's uh, it's a topic that. Uh, is maybe not discussed enough. There's continuing to be talk about a new Blackula movie coming out in 2024. So we may be hearing more details about that in the near future. You mentioned a moment ago, Brian, that Dracula is not the first vampire in popular culture, not by a stretch. The first, or at least one of the first that we know of, comes to us from a 19th century writer named John Polidori. And that vampire is Lord Ruthven. Tell us about him. We could spend this entire podcast and probably a whole series just talking about him. Uh, and I understand the uh, correct pronunciation is Ruthven, Ruthven really? or Riven. Um, and I still slip and say Ruthven a lot, too, because I read it as with the U in it, as everyone does. Uh, so I might even slip and call him Ruthven during the course of this discussion. But um I think you're correct in that 
was uh, Lord Rippon the very first fictional vampire? Maybe not, but the first pop culture one? Yes. Mm. Once he appeared in 1819, uh, he started popping up again and again in other people's stories. And I don't know how many dozens of uh, short stories, novellas, uh, plays. He was very big on the stage. Uh, the French loved him. Uh, the most popular English version was called The Bride of the Isles, and uh, in, in which he became a Scottish vampire. Um, he was the biggest thing in vampires before Dracula came along. He dominated the 19th century. Uh, usually he was uh, charming. He was erudite. He was noble. Uh, he used people up and disposed of them, much like Dracula did. So you can see where that uh, archetype of a noble vampire comes from. It all starts with that Polidori book uh, where Lord Rithin, who is a stand-in for Lord Byron, uh, uses up the people around him. They all come to ruin. There's not a lot of neck-biting necessarily, but people uh, do have their their... Their, their life force, their livelihood, their, their essence is slowly removed from them until they are no more. Even if he doesn't kill them, their life is ruined after he's done with them. Is it true, Brian, that Polidori came up with the idea for this story, The Vampire, spelled with a Y instead of an I? He came up with it during that very famous meeting with Mary Shelley, her husband, Byron, uh, they were all kind of uh, shacked up, if yeah. you will, at a, a remote uh, outpo uh, uh, outpost. And uh, it's, a, it's a story that's been tackled in film. The movie Gothic that mm -hmm. came out, the Ken Russell movie in the late 1980s, is very much a wild, fictionalized version of that. But do we really think that that's where Polidori came up with the idea? Yes and no. Uh, Polidori wrote a ghost story on that famous night about a, a woman with a skull face. Mm. And he dropped that. Uh, Byron wrote a uh, this sort of fragment of a story that he just then kind of tossed out and didn't really do anything with. Polidori then picked that up and fleshed it out and made it a full novella. So it, I think it's probably correct to say that the origin of that story, the vampire is at the same, the same night as uh, Mary Shelley came up with Frankenstein, but it wouldn't have been Polidori who originated it. It would have been Lord Byron. It would have been Polidori who made it the novel that it is. Um, and I, uh, ironically or not ironically, uh, Lord Byron was given credit for that. Uh, his name was put on a lot of the published books um, and it took a little effort to get Polidori's, uh, for him to get uh, credited with the correct authorship. Final question on uh, Lord Rithvin. The, the story, The Vampire, is written by Polidori. Does it hold up? Would you consider it a classic all these years later? I think so. I, you have to read it with, with 19th century goggles on. Okay. Um, it's not going to be a, a page turner the way a Stephen King novel would be now. Uh, you know, it's just it's written differently, but it's it's not long. It's pretty concise. It's easy to understand. It's not full of difficult language. Um, it 
but it works slower and it works in different ways than the kind of storytelling we'd be more used to today. Yeah. Next up on the list is a character, Varney the Vampire. This is a serialized story from those old penny dreadful pamphlets of the Victorian era. And these were a, this was a long series of stories about Varney the Vampire. It went from 1845 to 1847. I've never read them. And I guess if you put them all back to back, it's hundreds and hundreds of pages. But what I've read is that they're at times not particularly well written, but still entertaining. And they were pretty darn popular. They were. And quite the opposite of what I just said about Polidori's book, Varney is written in very flowery language. Mm. Um, it's dense. There are times where it can take a lot of effort to get through a paragraph and then say, now, now what happened in that paragraph? Um, <laughs> I, I remember taking note of one that had uh, 11 commas in one paragraph, one gigantic sentence that stretched on forever. And I had to use all my algebra skills to sort of start canceling out sections until I figured out, oh, okay, this is what we're trying to say here. Um, it is uneven in places because it's the, the, the people who have studied it uh, believe that it was not written by one author all the way through. James Reimer is credited with writing large parts, but probably originating it. And uh, other authors may have stepped in from time to time to take up pieces of it over the years. I'm not really sure. I, I, I'm not enough of a, uh, of a literary detective to, to see where the phrasing changes. And, oh, this is the handwriting of a different author. I can tell just by the way uh, they turn a phrase. Right. But it, it, it does feel like it shifts tones a lot. Um, when I was in a book club that was reading through it, the, the, the sort of our leader of our book club, Ed, Ed Pettit, said over and over again, hey, uh, no one expected anybody to read the back issues and check to see if there was continuity between these stories. So you would see a, a plot line go for several issues in this Penny Dreadful and then get dropped. Or you would see someone's backstory change from time to time. If you can get past all that, there are some very entertaining parts to it. Um, mm -hmm. It starts off with a bang uh, right out of the gate. There's no question that there is a vampire in our presence. There's not all this mystery that you always see in every other vampire story about, well, what's causing all these problems? Who's biting these necks? How mysterious? Is it an insect bite? No, right away. We know what the tale is going to be about. Uh, and there's some funny, very funny sections Later in the book, as you get really deep in, uh, there's some sections that are that are eerie, that are uncomfortable, mm. uh, but almost nobody finishes the novel. So uh, nobody gets to that part. Yeah, um, it is. I'm going to give a little bit of a spoiler here. I think it might be the first case of a vampire suicide, a vampire who says, I can't deal with this existence anymore. I have mm. to end it. Um that starts to get a lot more traction in the late 20th and 21st century. We start to see a lot more vampires. As vampires become more sympathetic, they start to do things like say, I cannot uh, live with this murderous life that I have created for myself. Let me end it all. Yeah. Uh, that was not the case for most early vampires. They reveled in their evilness. They liked the fact that they could 
use people and exploit them. And don't get me wrong, Varney does that for 99% of the novel. It's just in a couple places, he shows a little bit of humanity. And at the very end, he says, uh, well, it's time to wrap up this series. And here's how it's going to wrap up. It's going to wrap up in flames. Yeah. While you were speaking, I was able to look up the other author, I believe, Thomas Peckett. Thomas, yes, Prescott Peckett. Was that it? Uh, Peckett, P-E-C-K-E-T-T, Peckett. Yeah, thank you. I, I, don't, I could not get that out of my brain. Yeah. So at least two writers that worked on that. So Varney was pretty vicious, a murderer very much so, not a romantic oh, yeah. figure in any way. Uh, well, he was, he was uh, able to enrapture people. He, he definitely had a little bit of that hypnotic thing where he could uh, use his words in such a way to sort of, uh, uh, I don't want to quite say take over anyone's brain, but certainly influence behaviors yeah. the way uh, so many vampires have done. But yeah, he's definitely a bad guy. Uh, vampires are very much the villains in 19th century literature. We do not get uh, heroic, sympathetic vampires in the 19th century. Right. 1872, a very famous Gothic novel by Sheridan Le Fanu. Carmilla, is this the first female vampire in pop culture? It is certainly the first popular one. There were some stage plays in France. Uh, remember when I was talking about all those adaptations of Polidori's The Vampire that were set on stage, there were female vampires that would appear, not necessarily as a main character, but there were some female vampires in there. But the first that most people, especially the English-speaking world, would have known of would have been Carmilla. I was curious about um, just how vicious she was, because I know that Hammer Films did some movies in the 60s and 70s centered on Carmilla. And I recall that her character was pretty vicious. Was that the way Lafanu did it too? No. Uh, in fact, a lot of the the uh, death that Carmilla causes happens off the page. Mm. Um, and you're left to infer. There are moments where I'm still not quite sure, was this death caused by her or not? Um, most of the deaths that happen off the page, I suspect we are supposed to attribute to Carmilla. Um, I guess there's an argument that maybe she didn't. And uh, it's certainly a lot of people have studied this book a lot more than I have. This is uh, Carmilla. It would be the second most adapted vampire story after Dracula. Uh, there are still a lot of people who find this story fascinating, including myself. Yeah. Um, it's it's a good tale, and it largely holds up. It's uh, There's a reason why so many people, uh, if you go online into any sort of gothic or, or vampire uh, chat room or anything, there's a lot of people who have Carmilla 546 as their screen name. It's <laughs> a very popular book. Wow. And it, it's also short. It's also very digestible, much like uh, Polidori's The Vampire. Now, these three a good, a good entrance yeah. point to 19th century vampires. Yeah. These three characters from the 19th century, Lord Ruthven, Varney, Carmilla, do you suspect that they were all influential on Bram Stoker in writing, of course, his terrific novel, Dracula, 1897? Absolutely. Yeah. There, there's no question in my mind that all three of them were known to Stoker. And I, did he read Varney all the way through? I wouldn't expect so, but he was certainly aware of Varney and the broad strokes of what Varney was doing. Uh, he could not have gotten away from Lord Riffin. There's no way he was not familiar with Lord Riffin by the time he started writing Dracula. 
Um, and he had a personal connection to Carmilla. A lot of people don't know this. Uh, Bram Stoker, before he moved to England, was writing unpaid theater reviews for an Irish newspaper that was owned by Sheridan Lafanu. Mm. So, yeah, there's no question in my mind that he was familiar with uh, and was probably a lover of uh, that kind of literature. Ryan, we now jump ahead to the 20th century, early 20th century, 1922, the famous silent film Nosferatu, portraying a character, Count Orlock, which pretty much everybody accepts is really Dracula. The name, though, was changed for other reasons. Uh, Initially, Count Orlock played uh, by an actor named Max Schreck. And the first thing I want to ask about this one, I have a couple questions on this film and this portrayal of a, a famous vampire. There were always these rumors that came out around 1922 that Max Schreck was actually a vampire in real life. Um, I, I don't know how much there was to that. I don't know how many people actually believe that. But that's a story that is out there, and I'm sure you've heard about it. You know, I've heard that story, and I have not dug in to find out if those were contemporary beliefs. Like, mm-hmm. did people in 1922 think that, or did we retroactively start to uh, ask those questions? Um, I don't know that. Uh, Lockie Heist probably knows the answer to that. I don't. Uh, but I do think it's it's fascinating because boy he looks horrific on screen (laughs) i when you watch a when you think of a silent film from 1922 you don't think you're going to see something that scary on screen as max shrek um and you probably know that shrek is german for horror or terror Mm -hmm. so maximum horror is really what he delivered and i always tell people that uh, i always recommend nosferatu as a film for people but i also say Try to go see it live with a live orchestra or or band playing along with it because mm-hmm. it if you can get someone who can really hit those tones, it makes for a really rich experience um but you're right to get back to your main point um this is a little bit dancing on the line because he is sort of Dracula in a different form um in fact, I think that some of these subtitled or, or the intertitles they had on the silent films, I think that there were some that were released that called him Dracula instead of Count Orlock. Mm. But yes, uh, Count Orlock is, uh, I think, spooky as all hell. Uh, it is definitely a vampire movie that any vampire or horror fan or gothic fan should take a look at. You know, it's interesting when you look at the character of Orlock as you mentioned, very much a beast, doesn't look anything like the Dracula that we've come to know. There's nothing handsome, alluring, attractive, romantic about him. And it's also a vampire that actually spreads disease. That, to me, is a big thing. That is a very good point, because those folkloric vampires that gave, that lent this uh, this mythology to fiction— the vampire scares always seem to track very closely with outbreaks of disease. Mm. Um, Paul Barber did a very famous book on this. It's called Vampires, Burials, and Death. He's not the only person, but he probably has the urtext on this of 
tracking how vampire beliefs and disease, usually some sort of consumption, although other diseases as well, uh, led to a belief in the dead coming back to torment the living. Mm -hmm. In Nosferatu, the original one, they clearly knew about this because they said it in a German town that was undergoing uh, an outbreak of the plague. And they use rats, uh, plague-carrying rats, as one of the stand-ins for Count Warlock from time to time. So they they clearly were playing with that, to my mind. They knew uh, enough about that folklore to incorporate that. Yeah. And I think that should... That should come back. I feel like vampires and disease has been divorced from each other in a lot of our pop culture. And I think that'd be great to see someone bring disease or at least epidemics. We just got done with a pandemic. (laughs) I think there's a low-hanging fruit there to bring vampires back in. Yeah. So Shrek plays this character in 1922. Decades later, 1979, we have Klaus Kinski in the film uh, that was with a slightly different title, Nosferatu, Nos, Nosferatu the Vampire. Uh, Kinski was a wild character and uh, really criminal in a lot of his behavior, especially the way that uh, he treated other cast members, women. He was, uh, for lack of a better word, hell to work with. I thought, though, he was sensational in this role, this remake in 79. What do you think? I'm going to disagree. I don't think I don't think he brought anything to the role. Okay. Um, I think you could have stuck a lot of other different actors, put that makeup on them, and they would have given you just as good of a performance as Klaus Kinski in that. And I'm not saying that because of just because I want to dislike the guy. I remember watching that 1979 version and frankly being a little bit bored. Mm. And I say that as someone who sat through a silent film from 1922 that has long takes where nothing happens. I expected more from a 79 update to that story and I didn't get it. Um, And I was surprised because I've liked so much of Werner Herzog's films. That one just didn't ring for me. I don't know why. I did like the touch with all the rats coming out, uh, running through the city. Yeah. Uh, that part I liked a lot. Yeah. You know, I'm actually not that surprised that that's your reaction because a lot of the horror community is split on the movie. A lot of people love it, like myself. Others like you, David Skull, the terrific historian who's been a guest on this show. Uh, he really knows vampires, well, just as you do, and he's not a big fan of it either. So it doesn't really surprise me that um, knowledgeable people uh, that follow horror aren't necessarily fans of this version of Nosferatu. I'm curious, what was Skull's reason for not liking it as much? He um, he actually wrote something about how he felt that when he watched it, it seemed like all the actors and and even by extension the director were acting like they were stoned, like they uh, mm. weren't quite there. Uh, he And I think he shared some of the criticism that you have about not enough happened. It was very slow moving. There's a lot of um, imagery that's interesting, but maybe a story that kind of plods from time to time. So kind of reflects some of the things you said. I want to put a pin in one thing, though, about Nosferatu to the Vampire. Um Towards the end, do you remember how he is 
uh, drinking the blood from her neck. And he starts to look up and look around. Like maybe he's aware that daylight is breaking. And she gently takes his head and pushes it back down into her neck. Do you remember that moment? I do. Yeah. Keep a pen in that because I think that is going to come back as a reference in one of the series that we're going to discuss a little bit later in this session. Okay. So the original Count Arlock is 1922. Then we're going to we're going to jump ahead a number of decades to the 1960s. Mm-hmm. We're going to start with television and then move on to film with this character. It's Barnabas Collins from Dark Shadows, uh, played by a very fine Canadian actor, the late Jonathan Frid. On the TV show, Frid really makes it a well-rounded portrayal. There are times when Barnabas is sympathetic, charismatic. He's this reluctant vampire. He doesn't want to be this doomed creature. Um, And then in the movie, House of Dark Shadows, which I also happen to love, uh, he's much more extreme. He's very violent. He's very much a murderer. We don't see a lot of the subtleties uh, from him. So really two different interpretations from Jonathan Frid, and he's working at the behest of his director, um, uh, the late Dan Curtis. Uh, but I thought Frid was was terrific, both on the TV show and in the movie, even though they're different portrayals. Uh, I thought in general, he did a wonderful job in giving us this modern day character who became a pop culture sensation mm-hmm. in the 1960s. And didn't even start out on the series. He he wasn't a character at the beginning of the series. He came in later, and then they built the series around him. I, I can't think of a whole lot of uh, TV series that change their focus like that based on the audience reaction to a single character. Yeah. He really what saved the show. Without yeah. him, that show would have been canceled about a year, two years in. What do you think was behind the the different styling of his performance in the movie versus the TV show. I suspect that Dan Curtis, who directed the movie and of course had created the TV show with the TV show, he didn't have any money. So everything was done very cheaply without much in Mm -hmm. terms of special effects. They were also limited by, you know, TV standards of the day with the film, you know, now he's, he's got a bigger budget He's not as restricted by standards. Movies could be a little more risque, a little more violent. And I think he wanted to take advantage of that. And I think he certainly did. And he creates a good movie with an excellent portrayal uh, by uh, by Fred as Collins. So um, Fred himself did not like the movie portrayal. And that's why he didn't come back and do the second of the Dark Shadows movies. He didn't do Night of Dark Shadows because he didn't like how brutal and violent and murderous Barnabas had become. So uh, I think a lot of that comes from Curtis and Fred was just following orders. Overall, though, did you like the character of Collins? Oh, I thought he was he was a good step forward in vampires. Um, You start to see a little bit of the. Uh, the, the the iron wall of villainy starts to break a little bit mm. with Barnabas Collins. Um, I still think he is on the side of uh, the villainous vampire, but you do start to see a little bit of sympathy uh, for his condition. And I think if that's just the nature of the beast, if you're going to have a vampire in a series like that, and especially have them be the main character, 
you're going to have to understand their motivations, their thought processes, and then by extension, they have to become a little bit more sympathetic to the audience. That's a good point. We'll jump ahead a couple of years, 1972 and 1973. We have the two Blackula movies, both starring William Marshall, a Shakespearean actor, gives a very dignified portrayal. I guess in some ways reminds me of Jonathan Frid in that um, he does at times make this a sympathetic character, if not a completely likable one. And I think it's a pretty well-rounded performance. I, I know you're you're huge on Blackula and you're big mm-hmm. on William Marshall, too. Yeah, I think he, he takes what Jonathan Frid uh, was toying with and takes a big step forward with it. I think uh, I feel like with Blackula, we have our first truly sympathetic vampire. Um, he is we get to see how he becomes a vampire against his will, um, transported across the globe against his will. And suddenly he has this bloodlust that uh, is not something that he would choose to have. And all he really wants to do is fall in love and go home. That's yeah. that's his real motivation. The blood drinking is just the thing he has to do to get to that next step. It is not the uh, the reason for his existence the way it is with other uh, villainous vampires. He certainly isn't trying to take over the world like Dracula was. He isn't up for all the money like Varney was. Um, he's not even like Carmilla, just who seems to just be feasting for her own sustenance Yeah, just to get to the next day. He just wants peace and uh, he can't get it. And in the second movie, the second movie is something very similar where uh, he wants to be relieved of this vampirism. He's more villainous. He's more evil, I'd say, in the second movie. But at the same time, he wants to just shed all of this. And it's as though he can't help but do terrible things towards getting to that goal. So it's impossible not to have sympathy for him. Yeah. Whereas Bela Lugosi, his characters seem to enjoy being vampires, not Mm -hmm. Blackula. Exactly right. Um, Those early vampires all liked the control they had over people. They liked the fear that they could instill. Uh, That we start to see that really turn on its heel in 72 when Blackula comes along. Yeah. At the end of the decade, we have another great portrayal, the vampire Kurt Barlow from the TV miniseries Salem's Lot, which, of course, adapted from the great Stephen King novel. Here played by a relatively little-known character actor named Reggie Nalder. He's not given a lot of screen time, as this Kurt Barlow, but when he's on air or when he's on screen, that's about all you notice. Oh, it's yes. It's very memorable. If you Google Salem's Lot, the first 20 pictures will all be him. Uh, yeah, uh, not much like the Bela Lugosi's Dracula doesn't resemble the description in the book the barlow on screen does not resemble the description stephen king put forth for him um in stephen king's novel barlow speaks he has conversations he's very persuasive you might say hypnotic um he's terrifying in the movie he's much more in that mold of count orlock except i don't i don't think he says a single word in the movie does he no Am I wrong? Does he say anything? Okay, I didn't think so. And the and the newer, the more recent one, 
uh, with Rob Lowe, he does speak, but in the Toby Hooper version, he he has no lines. He just looks terrifying. And I don't know if you could speak with all those those teeth he had. I don't know how he could actually <laughs> articulate a single word. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a, a, a terrifying book and a terrifying adaptation. Um, I think it's fair to say the adaptation goes off in a different direction from the book. But much like a lot of Stephen King adaptations to film, somehow it's still strong despite being so different, much like The Shining. Mm-hmm. I would recommend the book uh, Salem's Lot as a, a must-read vampire book because I think Stephen King found a way to find a new angle on the terror of vampires. And it was no longer about, oh, no, what if they bite my neck? It, he, he found a way to place the horror in the destruction of a community. And seeing uh, everybody you know and everybody you love slowly decay around you is maybe more terrifying than facing that death yourself. Brian, although our focus in this episode is on the vampires, I did want to take a moment to acknowledge David Soule, a fine actor who just passed away a few days ago at the age of 80. Uh, I thought he did such a great job as the heroic protagonist Ben Mears in the Salem's Lot miniseries. He wasn't always given credit for being a good actor, uh, but he really was, I thought, wonderful. I thought he played this role terrifically. There's there's the scene Tracy and I had talked off air about the scene where he's in the hospital morgue and there's a body of uh, some woman who's about to become a vampire. She's about to revive herself. And he's off in the corner and he is taking tongue depressors, making makeshift crosses out of them. Then he sees the body is starting to rise from underneath the sheet And he starts to get a little bit jittery. He starts yelling out for one of his friends. He starts praying real fast. I don't know if you remember the scene, but I I reminded myself of it watching it the other night. I thought he just nailed it. I thought he was spot on. Yeah, he he had that problem of being a really good-looking guy who played a cop in a nice car on TV (laughs) so much that when he had to play a, a... maybe schlubby writer that uh, no one could see it. Yeah, that's a good point. Starsky and Hutch and Salem's Lot, two big parts of Mm. 1970s pop culture. So I have the next one. It is um, The Lost Boys and uh, the vampire is David. So this movie is from 1987, and the character David is played by Kiefer Sutherland. He's like very calm, cool, suave. So what what were your thoughts on this movie and the portrayal of David by Kiefer Sutherland? Well, and it's not just Kiefer Sutherland. He's not the only vampire in the film. There's there's a number. The, the Lost Boys. Um, as well as their master vampire. But yes, David is the one we remember, right? Um, yeah. Because Keith Sutherland turns in such a great performance. And I mean, he looks great. He's got the 80s mullet. He's, he's got the great jacket. Um, they all look so cool. Uh, this, you know, after Carmilla, this is, I think, our first teenage vampires. Mm. 
unless I'm missing, certainly the, the first big major teenage vampires mm-hmm. that I can think of after Carmilla. Um, there might be something obscure in there that I, I'm not aware of. But uh, it, 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 it spoke to this sort of dread people were having in the 80s about what's happening with the kids these days. What, why aren't they like us? And boy, the Lost Boys dialed right into that. Um, there, there's points in the film that don't strike me as being the strongest. Um, it's always called a horror comedy. I don't think I've ever laughed <laughs> watching that movie once. I don't think I've even cracked a grin. Um, but there's, there's a lot to like in it. Um, I got myself in a lot of trouble a few years back. Um, and by trouble, I mean just, you know, Twitter spats over my supposition that the Lost Boys are not, in fact, vampires. Oh, interesting. And my reasoning for that was I subscribe, I still kind of subscribe to this belief that in order to be a vampire, uh, there's not a lot of boxes you have to check. You don't necessarily have to drink blood. That is not a constant in all vampires. You don't have to die in the sun. That is not a constant throughout all vampire fiction. But one thing that is a constant is you have to die and come back. You have to be a revenant. Um, Your mortal life has to have ended. And we don't have any evidence that that happens to any one of the Lost Boys. There's maybe some suggestions in a couple places, but by and large, it looks like no one ever dies and comes back. So my hypothesis was that the the Lost Boys were some sort of supernatural creature that because they were so lost and adrift in their 1980s culture, they looked around and said, what do we resemble the best? And just like the Frog Brothers, mm-hmm. they picked up on fictional vampires and said, oh, oh we, we must be vampires. That must be what we are. Let's try to incorporate that into our identity. And uh, a couple people agree with me and a lot of people disagreed with me. <laughs> so I may have lost that argument, but I, I still thought it was something intriguing to think about and, and wrestle with the idea of what makes a vampire because it seems like there's very few must-haves to being a vampire. It seems like there's a whole lot of fluidity and what a vampire can be. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, uh, wow. That's actually a really interesting take on that. I never even thought about it in that way, but you might be onto something there. <laughs> okay. Sign on to my <laughs> petition. <laughs> I, you know, I'm going to have to watch that movie again and I'm going to watch it through that lens and, you know, I'll get back to you. <laughs> I know we've been doing a lot of movie stuff. Um, I picked up, some Lost Boys comic books not too long ago that were really good. Mm. Um, uh, it 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 started out with you, you know the sexy sax man mm-hmm. um, who doesn't remember sexy sax man. Well, he's a character, and guess what? He's a vampire hunter. No, he way. wasn't just there playing saxophone. He was looking for vampires. So they're they they have a lot of fun in the comic books. Oh my gosh, I didn't even know they made comic books, but I w- I was aware that there may have possibly been talks of like a sequel, like one or two sequels as well. well Joel Schumacher had wanted to do a Lost Girls sequel right? that never happened, hmm. but there were two other sequels that I've never seen. Uh, I'm, I've been told not to uh, deal with them, mm-hmm. 
that I couldn't even tell you what the plot is of them, but I know there were two official sequels made to the films. If there was a modern day uh, rebooting of it, I think they could probably do a lot with it. Oh, interesting. I'll have to take a peek for those. You know, you mentioned comic books. Our next vampire also originated in comics, and that would be Blade. Mm -hmm. The movie came out, the first of the three movies came out early 2000s. And actually, I went with my wife to see that first film, and I knew nothing about the comics. I I didn't know a lot about the character. Uh, I really liked it. I know some people scoff at the Blade movies and at Wesley Snipes. They say, well, it's more action than horror, but I, I think he does it very well. And it does bring us some things that are interesting to talk about. Here is really the first popular black vampire since Blackula. That's that's one thing uh, that we need to mention. And the other factor is that Blade is not only a vampire, but he's part human as well. So that's the other. Right. And I think anyone who makes that criticism, Bruce, that it's all action and not horror probably aren't familiar with the comic books because Blade is all action in the comic books. Yeah. He is all about throwing stakes into vampires and cutting off heads. Uh, he, he's, not a, he's not going to dwell in the shadows and hold candles up and, and wait for something to jump out. Uh, that's just not who Blade is. Uh, his, his character debuted in 1973, which would have been one year after Blackula. And I, I've always wondered if there was some influence there, and I've never gotten an answer for sure. Uh, but I think there must have been. There must have been something in the ether at that point that maybe Marv Wolfman saw what was going on with Blackula and created Blade as an answer to that. Um, of course, Blade exists in the Dracula universe in Marvel Comics. Uh, I don't believe Dracula's ever mentioned in the Blade movies. Uh, if he is, it must be a real flitting reference. But he, he originates as a as an enemy of Dracula. Um, in well, one in, version... In the first movie, Dracula is the enemy. Oh, okay, okay. It's not a real good portrayal okay. of Dracula, I'll say that. It's, I'm uh, thinking, it, okay, I'm getting yeah. confused on my, on my different Blade issues here. Yeah. Okay, thank the you for the The first movie, there is, there is a Dracula character. He looks nothing like... Lugosi or Lee, um, and he's, he's frankly that's I think one of the weaker um, part. Actually, it's, uh, maybe it's not the first movie; it's the third movie. It's the third movie where there is uh, a confrontation between Blade and Dracula. Um, the first movie, it's it's a different vampire, um, and in the second, there's sort of a strain of mutant vampires that are really weird and have things coming out of their throats. And, uh, but yeah, the third movie, there is, there is a Dracula representation, albeit not gotcha. a very good. Thank one. you. Yeah. Thank you for that correction. And remind me in the movie origin, is it that his mother is pregnant and is bitten by a vampire while she's pregnant? I believe that's how it okay. started. If, yep. if I'm remembering it right. I think you're right. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the folkloric word for that is, I think it's pronounced Dampir, mm. D-H-A-M-P-I-R. Of course, it's going to have different spellings, different pronunciations, depending on where you go. And there's different ways a Dampir can come along. 
in that folklore. Um, Jay Gordon Melton would, would tell me a story about how the Dampiers were supposed to be the vampire hunters of the folkloric villages in Eastern Europe. Um, and how they would say, well, because I'm half vampire, I can help you hunt and find these vampires, which was good work if you can get it. <laughs> and and probably held about as much water as people with the little water sticks who could find water. I'm, I'm sure it was uh, all a big con, but a good story. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, but yeah, th- but but Blade is uh, Blade is persistent. Um, he's been persistent through comics, through movies. Um, there's been an animated series. Mm-hmm. Um, there's they keep talking about making a new movie. I, there was just a new Marvel What If comic book that Marv Wolfman came back for to write with Blade uh, confronting Dracula once again. Mm-hmm. Brian, what did you think of Wesley Snipes as the character? I thought it was really good casting. Yeah. And a good update to the look. Uh, the early versions of Blade looked, by today's standards, looked kind of silly. Yeah. But uh, now he looks like a badass. Yeah. Here's one from 2011. It's a remake, the Fright Night movie with Colin Farrell playing Jerry the Vampire. Uh, it's very different from the 1986 film. I happen to like both. I think both the original and the remake are terrific. Farrell, though, is very different from the Chris Sarandon portrayal in the 1980s movie. Uh, Farrell's uh, Jerry is brutish, lacking refinement, sits around in a T-shirt drinking beers. What'd you think of it? I thought that what they were going for was they wanted someone that a teenage boy would say, hey, that guy's cool. Mm. And that's why they wanted to have a good looking Colin Farrell being able to slug beers and still, you know, look good like he does. Um, and maybe that was what they were trying to appeal to. Um, I've never seen the original Fright Night. It, that is a blind spot for me as far as vampires go. Uh, I, I always have to tell people that uh, when I start getting into conversations about vampires, inevitably I'm going to disappoint people because there's a lot I haven't seen and a lot I haven't read. Um my interest was never into in consuming all the vampire fiction. It was in finding the, the crossroads between where the fiction and the folklore and the pop culture were all meeting, not so much in covering every single base, but that is one that I probably really need to get on. Uh, Fright night is regarded as one of those classics. You know, you don't really have to see the original to appreciate the remake. As I said, they're both well done and in some ways, some of the performances in the remake almost outshine the original. Uh, David Tennant is hysterically funny as the vampire hunter, uh, Peter Vincent. And the late Anton Yelchin does a really good job as the heroic Charlie Brewster. Um, and not to say that, you know, Roddy McDowell and the other Eric, uh, actors from the original movie did not do a good job because they did. But I thought Yelchin and Tennant in particular really stood out in the remake. Did you find one to be scarier than the other? Probably the Colin Farrell character. He's a little more brutal, especially that one scene where he starts digging up the back lawn to his neighbor's house. And he's tearing out uh, the piping and the fuel lines and uh, ends up blowing up the house. (laughs) That's pretty frightening. Yeah. 
So I, I, I did like it. I, I thought as remakes go, it really was one of the better ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, another film of recent vintage, and you mentioned this briefly earlier, you're a big fan of Let the Right One In. The character, uh, is oh, it yeah. Ellie is the proper pronunciation? Ellie? I've always said Ellie. Ellie, um, okay. I, I, perhaps there's, there's a more correct Swedish way to pronounce that, but I've always said Ellie. Um, yeah, that, I, I love the book. I love both of the films. Uh, I, I'm not one who has to be a purist. I think there's things to like in both the Swedish and the American version. I will give a slight edge to the Swedish version. I think it is uh, more methodical and it's more brooding, which seems to be uh, more in keeping with the book. Uh, the American version I thought was a little more cinematic. So there was a little more of a feast for the eyes mm-hmm. in the American version. There was a TV series a year or two ago that came out uh, based on, it was more of a spiritual inheritor. Um, it was not based on the book really at all. It it took a few cues from the book and the movie and tried to play with them. Um, strong performances, maybe not the most satisfying storyline, uh, but definitely had some good moments. Um, I just for Christmas received uh, the book of short stories, Let the Old Dreams Die, which has the short story sequel to let the right one in. And it answered some questions that I had always had with that book. Like what really happens after that last page? Um, our two main characters, uh, at the risk of spoiling things, our two main characters uh, travel on and what's in store for them. And we get to find out a little bit of that in the sequel, although it's, it's still pretty veiled, still pretty veiled. There's still lots of questions and lots of mysteries, which is, I think makes it a good horror story. Brian, how do you respond to a child vampire? Um, I'm sure there's a clever answer to that. Uh, shiny things, candy. (laughs) Um, I think it, it, it had to happen because look, Good horror takes things that shouldn't be deadly, that shouldn't be a threat, and makes them a threat. That's why clowns became deadly. That's why we have uh, fish and birds that are deadly. Mm. That is why an axe that should just be a tool becomes a weapon that is used to terrorize teenagers at camps. Uh, It had to be the case eventually that there would be a child vampire, something that shouldn't be a threat, something that shouldn't be deadly, becoming deadly had to happen. And uh, was there one before Let the Right One In? There must have been. Lost Boys has sort of covered that base a little bit. You have the tween vampire in there, but do we have a child vampire before Let the Right One In? Well, Interview Eddie with a Munster? Vampire. Interview with a Vampire. Oh, not sure. The main oh, character, of course. Of course. Okay, but, yeah. Uh, that, side how character. Did I, yeah. How did, I, how did I blank out on that one? Of course, yeah. Um, interview. We didn't really address Interview or Lestat or any of the Vampire Chronicles here, but hugely influential. Yeah. Uh, that'd be a that'd be an entire show. Um, but for me, uh, centering Ellie in that story along with her human counterpart uh, told a a different sort of tale, a bleaker vampire tale than what we're really used to, and and. Lindquist understood that there are certain beats you have to hit in the vampire story, and he hit all of them. But he 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 
put it together in such a way that it wasn't meant to be a scare a minute. It was long periods of brooding punctuated by intense violence. Hmm. And boy, it worked for me in a way that uh, almost no other vampire story has. So I would like to move on to Mike Flanagan's 2021 release, Midnight Mass. It is one of my most favorite miniseries. And Father Paul, also known as Monsignor Pruitt, played by Hamish Linklater. Um, what were your thoughts on that miniseries? I appreciated it in ways I had not appreciated a vampire uh, series or movie in a long time. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't believe they ever say the word vampire in that entire series. They did not. I don't believe. No. And that tracks with, because it's an American set vampire story, um, it tracks with the the American vampire panic that lasted over 100 years. They never said vampire either. Uh, the people who were undergoing that, uh, we'll call it an affliction, but that scare, that panic, mm -hmm. uh, they didn't have that word to describe what they were dealing with. Um, and I thought it was a nice tip of the hat that Mike Flanagan didn't use the word either. Now, you remember um, when we were talking about Nosferatu, uh, I said, put a pin in that moment where she brings uh, Orlok's head back down to her neck. Mm -hmm. Well, that same thing happened, and I love that it happened. And that final moment, those final moments of Midnight Mass, uh, that something very similar to that was going on. That's right. That was that was a huge point for me too. I really appreciated that scene. I liked it. it you know, there, we've spent so many decades humanizing vampires that it was nice to see that in a different way. Yes, there was some humanization to the vampires, but it was still a horrific other in their presence. So he managed to straddle that very well, I thought. Yeah, I think he did an excellent job. And, you know, I just, I, I thought, you know, the character that played, that Father Paul character, you know, he, he was so well, kind and charming and very persuasive. Everybody loved him. And, you know, he thought he was doing so many good things for his parishioners. And, you know, in his heart of hearts, he kind of thought that this vampire being was, you know, an angel, like a divine gift from from God, I guess. And I just, I thought it was such an interesting take, just so many different things that I never even thought of and to put it all together in a, you know, a vampirish story I thought was amazing. What do you think was the angel's motivations? Oh my goodness. I just, I'm, I'm so not sure because I, I don't know. I still, I've watched it. I kid you not probably five or six times and I keep rediscovering new things and just forming different opinions. Like every single time I watch it. I, I, I'm curious, I, I, because the easy answer is, well, vampires always want to spread their vampirism. But if Hamish's plan had gone off, that doesn't seem like that would have happened. No, so that's was right. The, was the angel working at cross purposes? Did he, was, did, was he okay with this plan of Father Hamish's? I don't know. Um, he needed to, you know, occasionally drain one of the people who lived on the island, but 
apart from that, what was he going to do? Did he allow himself to get taken back to America or I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't I know. know. I, I would love to hear other theories on that. I, I think he wanted I, the the vampire or the angel. I, I think he wanted to kind of feel safe. So I do believe he allowed himself to be brought over. And, you know, I I think, you know, he was trying to do something decent for the Father Paul character. And, you know, it was just kind of, you know, they kind of went hand in hand. One was helping the other kind of, you know, do what was best for them. And at the very end of the series, when, you know, the tattered vampire is flying away, I really believe that we might see it like another kind of angle or a different series, like a part two, to kind of conclude that story. I just, I think there's so much more there that could be told. That'd be a great one to see fleshed out. Yeah, absolutely. Or not, or not. Sometimes <laughs> mysteries are better left untouched. I know Bruce and I had that conversation last week and I was like, oh, but there's just, there's different things I would really love to just kind of sink my teeth into a lot more. That's one of those stories that yeah. I could definitely, I need to have more. So you yeah, just you gotta, never know. You gotta be careful what you wish for too, right? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you get a Rogue One, sometimes you get a Solo. Oh. <laughs> you never know what you're going to get when you ask for more or something. <laughs> you could be true with that one. <laughs> Brian, one last film we wanted to ask you about, and it's a movie that I really wasn't aware of until you told me about it. came out last year in September. It's called El Conde. It's a Chilean film. El Conde means the count, and it's about a vampire that actually does age over time, slowly but uh, takes on a different appearance as he goes from one century to another. You told me you really like this portrayal. I think it was the best vampire film I saw of 2023. And I say that having enjoyed Renfield um, and, and enjoyed uh, Last Voyage of the Demeter as well. But El Conde was doing something very different and it did it very well. Uh, I'm not spoiling anything by saying that the vampire in question is Augusto Pinochet, the Chilean dictator. Um, he lives many lives, but that's kind of his last form. Um, and they play around with some of the, uh, vampire tropes. It's, it's not, uh, locked into what we always think of. Oh, must drink blood from neck, must avoid sun crosses are bad. Uh, they, they try some things, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't ring untrue. It all kind of works more or less. Um, and boy, it it just, uh, I don't have anything clever or uh, analysis-wise to say about it, except that it was a refreshing return to a, a sort of vampire that was evil, and capital E evil. Um, and I like that we're getting back to a little bit of that now. I think Demeter and, to, a, to an extent, Renfield also said, uh, hey, let's... Let's have a reaction to vampires that are all nice and that refuse to drink blood because we want to maintain our humanity. We're going to be evil again. Um, and I think, I think some of that's been a hard needle to thread. Um, it hasn't always come across quite right, but I think in El Conde, they started to get there uh, in a way that other films had not been doing. 
Well, at your suggestion, I watched the movie just a couple of nights ago. And one of the things I thought was really cool were the scenes of him flying through the air, Mm. uh, which were filmed at a distance with his cape wide open. I thought that was really cool. And then there was um, the uh, the nun who essentially becomes a vampire. And there was an extended scene of her flying through the air. And that was really wonderful special effects. I thought yeah, that was really well done. That was really well done. And before we start making jokes about the flying nun, uh, it, <laughs> it really was. It was good, though, wasn't it? Like, yeah. I haven't seen that sort of uh, cinematic sweep in, uh, you know, someone flying, you know, not even... Yeah. It was it was beautiful at the same time as you were kind of cringing about what was actually happening just below the surface between these characters. Well, Brian, we really appreciate your time over this past hour. Great insights on a wonderful uh, array of non-Dracula vampires from the 19th century all the way to the current day. We look forward to your next article in Tucker Christine's Dracula Beyond Stoker. And let us know about anything new that you're working on, uh, Blackula or otherwise. But thank you again. Appreciate it, Brian. Absolutely. I don't know when Tucker's next issue of uh, Dracula Beyond Stoker is coming out, but uh, I am working up something. I was just uh, working on it today. So hopefully uh, it will all be squared away and in there uh, sometime late winter, early spring. We look forward to seeing that. Our guest has been Toothpickings, Brian Forrest, expert on vampires, uh, terrific writer. Uh, check out some of the stuff that he's done on the Internet and check out some of his YouTube videos as well. We thank uh, Brian. We thank our co-host, uh, Tracy Asteria, as well. We appreciate all of you folks listening in and joining us in this Museum of the Macabre. We hope that you'll join us next time right here in the Ghostly Gallery. <laughs>